All right, we're going to jump into the word. Before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. So pray with me. Um, God, we just thank you for this night, and I thank you for each person in this room. Thank you that you are God, that we are not, that we do not have to be in control, and that we do not have to guess about what is true about you because you've spoken to us. So even as we prepare to open up the book of Matthew tonight, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you would speak to us. In spirit, I ask that you would uh, speak through me, uh, that my words would be your words, and that you would get the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, we are in week 10 out of 10 in our Sermon on the Mount series. It's been titled, A Life Worth Living. And we opened up this series by saying, we all want the good life. We want life and life to the fullest. But um, there's this reality. I came across this statistic uh, over Thanksgiving break. You guys ready for it? 100% of people die. Yeah, I don't know if you knew that or not. So... This, this concept of, yeah, we all want the good life. We want to live life to the fullest. Your life will end one day. And I say I find this statistic out. Um, I actually had a conversation with my grandma, who is 92 years old. She's still kicking it. Um, so I was talking with my grandma over Thanksgiving, and she had clipped out a bunch of news articles from when my wife played basketball in college. And she's like, Jordan, I figured I'd give you these news articles from when Ellie played basketball just in case I ever move or if I ever die. And I looked at my aunt, who would be her daughter, and I was like, who's going to break it to her? Like, she will die. Does she know that? Uh, she did know that. Um, but we have to wrestle with this reality, Salt Company, that death is inevitable. And you know what else is inevitable? Judgment judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, meaning we will all die and we will one day stand before God and we will give an account for our life. And Matthew 25 actually gives this crazy picture of Jesus as king and as judge doing like a sorting Right? And on his right-hand side, he is going to tell people, come and be blessed and inherit the kingdom. You have eternal life. You have salvation. And on his left-hand side, he is going to look at people and he is going to say, depart from me. Be cursed. You don't get the kingdom. Here's what you get. Eternal punishment. You get destruction. There's this sorting. And though we all want to focus on the here and now, right? You're 18 to 23 years old. It's kind of hard to think about what am I going to be doing three billion years from now? We should stop and actually wrestle with this reality of not life right now, but life after death. Because it's inevitable and it's eternal. It goes on and on and on. And this raises concern. When you think about people like us standing before a holy God who is perfect and is ready to judge injustice and people who have rebelled and turned their back. How does that make you feel? Feeling good about it? And if so, what if I told you that we serve a God that sees? He sees you fully. He sees you on your worst day, in your weakest moment, and even on your best day, he sees your heart. He knows your motives. He knows how proud you might be or how much attention you want. How good do we feel about it? 
We're going to do a quick little activity. We all love activities in church. So I'm going to give you an opportunity. Don't cheat, okay? There's no need to cheat. Everybody's doing it. You can write it on a notepad if you're taking that. Otherwise, on your phone, I want you to write down one number in one sentence, okay? So on a scale of 1 to 10, here's the number I need you to write down. On a scale of 1 to 10, if you died today, how confident would you be that you would be in heaven? 10 being absolutely confident, 1 being not confident at all. 1 to 10, write down your number. All right, I told you I'd give you one number, one sentence. Now, as you look at the number, you have one sentence to say, why would God let you into heaven? Why? So the number, how confident are you? And the sentence, why? Why are you confident? Salt Company, I need you guys to listen to me, okay? If your number is high, Jesus, as he teaches in Matthew 7 tonight, might confront you and say, maybe your number shouldn't be so high. But he's also here to say, if your number is low, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Because Jesus is going to teach us that we can have confidence in salvation tonight. As you think about this sorting, he's going to show us that we can know that we are on the right side of God. That we have this offer to come, be blessed, inherit the kingdom, have eternal life, receive salvation. So can you be a 10 out of 10? And if so, how can you be so certain? That's where Jesus is going tonight. We're in Matthew chapter 7. We'll have verses on the screen. would love for you guys to read along with me in your Bible. So we're going to just tackle the first few verses, starting in Matthew 7, verse 21. The Word of God says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All right, I'm going to give you an opportunity to use your eraser or your backspace button if you want to go back and change your answer. I mean, honestly, this text is one of the most terrifying passages in the entire New Testament. People wrestle with this and struggle with this, and they, they ask this question, is this me? Will I one day stand before God, and he will look at me and say, I never knew you. I never knew you. It was all for nothing. He talks about two types of followers, right? Last week, we talked through two different types of paths and two different types of prophets. And tonight, we, we're talking about two different types of followers who have two different types of foundations. And what Jesus here is teaching is there's a type of follower that actually will not end up on his right. They'll end up on his left. And when most of us think about hell or judgment, destruction, we have this idea in our head that we know who goes there, right? It's the people who 
downright reject God altogether, whether they follow a different religious system or they don't claim to have a religious system, they've just rejected him altogether, or people who have done awful things. It's not hard for us to think through, oh yeah, maybe somebody like Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer is in hell. Like, we kind of create this framework of people who have rejected or rebelled to the utmost degree. Like, yeah, maybe they're in hell. But who is Jesus talking about here? Who is Jesus saying will not have access to the kingdom of heaven, but yet will be told to depart from him into destruction? Well, you got to look at what they're doing. Number one, they're saying, Lord, Lord. So, they are publicly proclaiming that Jesus is God. <laughs> they have this public profession of faith that says, Jesus, you are Lord. You are a God. You are deity. They have the right answers, and much more than that, what else are they doing? It says they're prophesying, meaning they're like foretelling events of God. They're casting out demons, and they're doing many mighty works, like performing miraculous healings in Jesus' name. And it's insane to me that Jesus, in this text, does not even dispute that these people have done incredible things. But yet what he does say is, I never knew you. You're workers of lawlessness. Which means, Salt Company, you can have the right answers and even do the right things. You could even do miraculous things and you could be a fake Christian. And you could face an eternity of separation from God and destruction. It's terrifying. But as we look at this last statement of Jesus, I want us to see two main problems. Two main problems of the people that he's speaking to. The first is, he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. The word knew is not talking about intellectual knowledge. We serve a God that is all-knowing. He knows everything about everyone. The word knew is talking about closeness and intimacy. And because we're all adults here, the word new used here is also used in Matthew 1.25 when it says that Joseph did not know Mary. You're, you can figure that out, right? Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Mary was a virgin, okay? We're tracking there. To know these people would require closeness and intimacy. And Jesus is saying, we are not close. We have no intimacy. We have not connected. And so some of you guys might know um, one of my close friends. His name is Jason Tatum. Um, he plays basketball for the Boston Celtics. He's not that big of a deal. He's a you know, MVP candidate probably every year. But um, every March 3rd, I call him up. We talk about his birthday. And um, yeah, my aunt and uncle live in St. Louis which is where he was at, I, I'm well aware that he graduated from Chaminade. And his dad, Justin, uh, actually coached my neighbor, Ron, at Saldan in St. Louis. Um, so Jason and I were pretty tight. But if you were to talk to Jason Tatum, say you got like a front row pass at a Celtics game, and he came over and you were like, hey, 
you know my college ministry pastor, Jordan Howell. He'd be like, who the heck is that? He has no idea who I am, right? As much as I know about Jason Tatum, as much as I follow his statistics, as much as I know real facts about his life, because by the way, my neighbor actually was coached by Jason Tatum's dad. There's a lot that I know about him, but Jason Tatum has no clue who I am. And there's the same reality that the same thing could be said to you by God. Saying, you know a lot about me. You've done a lot of study. You've committed your life to know theology. But guess what? We never had a relationship. And then the second thing is he calls them workers of lawlessness. This is confusing at first glance because it's like, they seem to be doing incredible things, right? Like prophesying, by the way, that can be a spiritual gift, the gift of prophecy. Casting out demons seems like a good thing. And doing many mighty works, perhaps providing healing to people who are sick and lame and blind. It's like, what makes them workers of lawlessness? Well, the reality is they are building a resume that's rooted in their own achievements for God. They're standing up before God, and if he were to ask them the question, why should I let you in, their answer looks something like this. Because I know you're God, and look at everything else I did. Right? I understood who Jesus was, and I tried my hardest. I understood who Jesus was, and I read my Bible. I understood who Jesus was, and I went to church as often as I could. I shared the gospel with as many people as I could. I tried staying away from the party scene as much as I could. There's this idea of Jesus plus, right? Jesus plus your efforts. And it's a form of fake faith where we've actually used Jesus to make ourselves proud. And for whatever reason, think that we have earned our own way into heaven. Jesus played a part, but so did we. And this is a type of faith that's actually not about knowing and enjoying Jesus, but rather seeking the benefits that he offers, right? Feeling a sense of righteousness, or maybe even deceiving other people into thinking that we have something special, and I want you guys to understand a, a really simple math equation. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus plus something equals nothing. If you look back at your answer and your number says, this is why God should let me in, and it has anything to do with your own effort, I'm telling you, Jesus is speaking to you today. You don't stand a chance if that's your defense you do not stand a chance. I mean, Paul in Galatians says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And what he says before that is he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Meaning, I don't want to cancel out the grace of God by adding my own righteousness to it, because here's what grace is. Unmerited favor. You can't earn it. So the second you try to add to it, you've canceled grace. You've canceled grace. And now you have to be thinking, okay, well then who does get into the kingdom? <laughs> right? If these people can't get into the kingdom, 
and they've prophesied, they've cast out demons, they've done many mighty works. Well, Jesus says in verse 21, here's who gets into the kingdom of heaven, the one who does the will of my Father. And again, I'm, I'm looking at these things and I'm like, are these things not the will of the Father? <laughs> to prophesy and cast out demons and heal and do many mighty miracles? Well, there's another section of text I want us to look at. It's John chapter 6, where Jesus actually is addressing a similar situation going on. So you're maybe familiar with Jesus multiplying loaves of bread and fish to feed 5,000 people, right? Took five loaves of bread, two fish, he multiplied them, fed 5,000, you know, doing classic Jesus, Jesus things. And then here's what he does. He sends his disciples across the sea to Capernaum, catches a quick nap, right? And then he decides to walk on water to join them. And the people that were just fed wake up and they're like, wait a second, where did Jesus go? Because we know that the disciples took off, but he wasn't with them. Where did he go? Well, they find out he's in Capernaum. So they hop on boats, they go to Capernaum, and they're looking for Jesus. And here's what Jesus says to them. This is John 6, starting in verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus replied, saying, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in him whom he has sent. These men had the same problem that Jesus is addressing in Matthew 7. They're simply using Jesus. They want what Jesus has to offer. Hey, do that cool party trick again because we want more bread. Give us more bread. Like, show us that you can do it again because we're hungry. And Jesus is saying, that's not how I work. Right? You can't just want the benefits from me, but not want me. You can't just use me. That's not what I'm here for. And Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. You want physical bread? You want to like fill your stomach? Well, here's the real problem. That will not satisfy you, at least not for long. You're going to become hungry again. You need real satisfaction, and by the way, it's not based upon what I can offer you, it's based upon who I am. I am the satisfier of your soul, and only I can satisfy you, and only I can save you. So, if you're saying, man, what's my case in heaven then? If I can't say, look at everything I've done, I'll give you another math equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Which means we have the opportunity to say 10 out of 10, I know I'm going to heaven. Because here's what is fundamentally true. I am a sinner. I have turned my back on the God of the universe. But in his great mercy, because of how much he loved me, he sent Christ to earth 
to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death, to rise victoriously from the grave, to provide me with his righteousness and to satisfy my soul. And I beg that you would let me into heaven because I can only be satisfied in you. And because my righteousness is not my own, but it's because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. That is who enters the kingdom of heaven. People who can say that, their only resume is in the finished work of Christ. And so now we know the answer, right? Where does our confidence come from? Christ, his finished work, nothing we can add to. But now the question is, how do we know if that's really our heart posture? Because we can all know the right answers and fall right back into this slippery slope that he's addressing. Lord, Lord, oh, I know the right answers. I know that the only way I'm getting into heaven is because of Jesus. How do we know that's not just lip service? Is there any evidence that we can look for in our life to figure out if we truly believe that or if we're trying to deceive ourselves? The good news is there is. There's evidence to look for, and Jesus tells us in the following verses in Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So, hot summer months in this audience. Jesus is talking to an audience that is well aware that the sand around the Sea of Galilee gets really hard, really stiff in the summer. And what is true is it could be built upon. It's hard enough that you could build a house on sand. It's not like what you and me think of where you're like letting sand sift through your fingers. It's like really hard sand. But people that were wise said, guess what? We know that torrential downpour is very common in Israel. And so if we build this on the sand, it's not going to last. Even if it does for a little bit, the second it starts to rain, our house is going to get washed away. So we need to dig down, get beneath the surface, and establish a firm foundation. So it's not a matter of if you can build. And it's not even a matter of if the storms will come. They will. The question is, will your house last? And now we're saying, okay, how does this relate to our faith? The question is, will your faith last? Because it's not a matter of if you can give the right answers. It's not a matter of if you can do the right thing. And it's also not a matter of if life is going to get really hard and trials are going to come up and wage war on you. Now the question is, will your faith last? Will your faith last? And we see two evidences here of real saving faith, faith that lasts, not just in your lifetime, not just until you're like 70, 80, 92, like my grandma, but faith that is going to last for billions upon billions of years for eternity. I want you to see two evidences. The first is this, faith that lasts is faith that listens. Faith that lasts is faith that listens. You guys know the difference between hearing and listening, right? 
Like to hear means you simply perceive sound. I've been in a lot of contexts, especially with my kids, where they're talking to me and I hear them, but I'm not listening. Right? And Ellie will quickly say, are you listening? And I'm like, no, I'm not. (laughs) I'm totally tuning them out. Because to hear is to perceive sound, but to listen is to pay attention. And to pay attention in order to hear, understand, and respond. So the question I'm asking is, are you listening to God? Are you listening to God? Because faith that lasts, in verse 24 says, this is what the wise builder does. He hears these words of mine, and does them. And the unwise builder, the faith that doesn't last, this fake foolishness, hears God and does not do them. They're both hearing, but only one is listening. And then you have to think, okay, everyone who hears these words of mine, what are the words of mine that Jesus is talking about? We're in week 10 out of 10 on the Sermon on the Mount. We walked through it in 10 weeks. Jesus did it in likely one preaching. So he's just finished up an entire sermon. He's like, all right, how are we doing? Are you meek? Are you merciful? Do you live different than the world? Are you dealing with your anger problems? Are you fighting against your lust? Are you someone who honors your word? Are you someone who loves your enemies and prays for those who persecute you? Are you living for the reward of being seen by God and not for other people? Are you living this private faithfulness? Are you dying to greed and covetousness by storing up treasure in heaven? Are you trusting in God's goodness? Are you seeking him first in your life? Are you honestly addressing your own sin or are you quick to point out other people's flaws? Are you praying with persistence? Are you walking the narrow road? Are you allowing yourself to be influenced by godly leaders? Okay, everyone who hears these words and does them, you've got a firm foundation. Is there something that I just recapped that it's like, guess what? You heard it, you just haven't been doing it. Guarantee there is. We are quick to forget, to move on, to fight something for a week and then to show up to Salt Company or church the next week and move on to the next thing. And Jesus is saying, no, here's what you need to do. My words, not selective obedience. This entire sermon I've taught, hear them and do them. This is evidence of somebody who has been saved. John in 1 John 5 says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So as you just think about the commands of God, like, hey, obey this way. Put your sin to death in this way. That you would say, yes, I want to do that and that is not oppressive to me. That's where freedom is found. And maybe you're sitting here like, shoot, I've screwed up. And I would say, yeah, You have. If you're anything like me, even just recapping the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, man, I haven't done that perfectly. Well, then can you be obedient to 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a matter of if you will fail to meet the mark again. The question is, if you are a follower of Jesus... 
Are you willing to call sin what it is and to confess it to God and to confess it to other people and to acknowledge that you still need saving? This is not a one-and-done thing, but you are in continuous need of grace and mercy. Can you do that? That's what obedience looks like. Even in disobedience, to then obey the command to confess your sins to God and to repent, to turn away from your sin and turn towards God. So faith that lasts is faith that listens. Second thing you need to see is saving faith stands through storms. Alluded to this a little bit on the front end. Like, it is not a matter of if a storm is going to come in your life. You've probably heard that before. Like, you're either in a valley, you're either in a valley, heading out of a valley, or heading into a valley. That's part of human existence. Storms come, and they rage, and they press and beat in against this house that we're living in, this life that we have established. And in both circumstances, in Matthew 7, on the surface, the houses look the same. But you find out which house is legit when the storm comes. Not if the storm comes. When the storm comes is when you figure out what your foundation is. And there is just a simple reality. If your foundation is built upon anything other than Christ and his word, it will crumble. If your hope is in your obedience, it probably crumbled over Thanksgiving break. If your hope is in your health, it takes one diagnosis for that to crumble away. If your hope is in Christian relationships, you will be let down. You're friends with a bunch of other people who are falling short of the glory of God. Your hope is not in Christians. Your hope is in Christ. And so when these trials arise, it shows us if our faith is legit. Because anyone can follow Jesus when life is easy, going their way, right? But what happens when life doesn't go our way? When all hell seems to literally be breaking loose in our life, are we going to be people that cling to Jesus' word, that obey him when it's hard, that enjoy him even in the midst of trial? Because trials prove the genuineness of our faith. They really do. I mean, Peter talks about it, First Peter 1, I'm going to start all the way back in verse 3 just because it's beautiful, and I think you deserve to hear it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is incredible language. Talk about a secure foundation that is unshakable. But in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like trials prove what you really believe in, 
what your foundation is really rooted in. And maybe you've never thought about it this way, but one day you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you don't want to be caught guessing whether or not your faith was legit. Like, trials are a sign of God's kindness. That God is kind enough to allow our faith to be tested before it is judged. So when trials arise and if you find out your foundation is washed away, you have the opportunity to repent, to trust in him before judgment day comes. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you get trials that arise to just drive home this assurance of salvation. Yes, Jesus is my firm foundation. I do not need to fear judgment day because he is my prize even when life is falling apart. Trials are a gift and so the, the confidence in our salvation is Jesus' work for us. There is this reality that the evidence of our salvation is how we respond to him. How we respond to him. And I, I put this uh, illustration up on the screen for you. We call this the identity triangle. Maybe you've seen this before. Um, I just want to talk you through it to better explain this illustration between salvation and works. There's a ton of confusion in and around religion today about how this works. So, um, I want to talk about the inside, the red arrows, which red means bad, right? Okay, bad news bears. Inside the arrow, this is many people's approach to God. They say, actions, if I do the right thing, if I obey, if I measure up, if I fill in the blank, then I earn an identity where I therefore one day will get to approach God and say, I tried my hardest to be a good person. It's not how it works. Our text tonight is very clear. That's not how it works. That is not the gospel. But all three components are at play in the gospel. And that's where you need to look outside. The green arrows. Green means what? Good. Green means good. Go, right? Here's what happened. God looked at you in a helpless state. In a helpless state. You were like a blind beggar in Luke 18. And he said, you need healed. You need saved. So he sent Christ down to live in your place, to die in your place, to resurrect, and to offer you a new identity. To say, you can be born again. And by the way, I will cause you to be born again. Right? So he gives you this new identity, and then your only appropriate response is to say, if Jesus really lived for me, really died for me, really resurrected, he's changed my life and made me new, the only appropriate th thing I can do is live for him, to respond in good works, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you should go read it later. You're saved by grace, through faith. This is a gift. It's not your own doing. Yet... If you've received this, you are the handiwork, the masterpiece of God. He has created you for good works. That you would respond to him, that you would give him the glory in how you live your life. This is incredible news. And as Jesus closes out this Sermon on the Mount, here's what it says, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I mean, for the first time, these people are sitting and they're listening 
to the truth of this message. But what's crazy to me is that it wasn't that they hadn't heard truth before. They had people that were teaching them truth. What were they astonished by? His authority. They were astonished at Jesus' authority, that he was not teaching truth just like other teachers. He was teaching truth as the Son of God himself. And they're amazed. But Saul Company, astonishment is not enough. We cannot just leave this place and say, that's incredible. Astonishment warrants action. It requires action. And so I want to give you two really simple application points tonight. As you just look at the simple but yet profound news of the gospel, the first is this, rest fully in Jesus. Rest fully in Jesus. Acknowledge that he alone is your savior. You cannot save yourself. Stop trying. Rest in the finished work. What Jesus accomplished for you was done 2,000 years ago. And now the question is, will you believe in it? Will you entrust your life to the finished work of Jesus? Maybe you have been on the treadmill of self-righteousness for your entire life, and I'm inviting you to step off. Stop trying to earn your own salvation because Jesus has already secured it for you. Rest. And maybe you're a Christian in this room tonight and what you need to remember is that you can actually rejoice in Jesus. Like, he does not need your Christian activity. He's not impressed by you doing something for him. He wants to be with you. He wants you to sit at his feet, to enjoy his teaching, to chill out. And though maybe you've heard before, yeah, I know, my salvation is rooted in Jesus alone, I want you to remind yourself of Jesus. Because as I alluded to, there's a high likelihood, if you're a Christian in this room tonight, you had a terrible Thanksgiving break. And though you know that you were saved when you were yet a sinner, you have somehow deceived yourself into thinking, yeah, Jesus bought my salvation back then, but now it's up to me to maintain. Stop doing that. Like, actually rejoice in Jesus. Remind yourself that you can't unearn his favor, right? Like, you can't outsin the grace of God. Stop hanging your head and trying to measure back up to get back to where you were. Throw yourself on the grace of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, respond fully to Jesus. He is not just your savior, he is your Lord. Yes, he has saved you from your sin, but now if you have received his saving, guess what? He is Lord, which means master. He gets to tell you what to do. He has say over what you do and don't do, what you say and don't say. Be obedient. And I would just invite you to develop a discipline of obedience. Develop a discipline of obedience because you will go through seasons of life where obedience is harder. And if you can just develop a discipline of doing the right thing, following the Lord, praying consistently, guess what? When you're faced with trials, you know what you're going to do? You're going to fall back on these disciplines and this relationship that you've fostered with the Lord. So don't pick and choose when you obey. Don't pick and choose what you obey. Be fully obedient. Look into the word of God on a consistent basis and ask, where am I not obedient? 
Show me my sin so that I can turn from it and follow you. And to wrap up, if we would do this, we would live out our name, the salt company. Right? Jake taught about that pretty early on in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, salt is a preservative. When you think about that, it's like, we want to be a people that last. Like, one of the things we say frequently around salt company is we care more about forever than semesters. I really do not care if you claim to follow Jesus when you're a 19-year-old if I won't see you in heaven. And I do not care if you claim to follow Jesus as a 19-year-old if as a 59-year-old or 79-year-old you're not still loving the Lord. But it starts today to say, man, I want to rest fully in Jesus. I want to respond fully to Jesus. I want to be obedient to him today. Guess what? Your faith will last and If you've received this good news, you get the invitation now to go and tell other people that they can have a faith that lasts. So many people are terrified of death, right? They think about the afterlife and they've sold themselves short to say, oh, you know, I just try not to think about it because one day I hope I'll be good enough. Like, you owe it to them now. You've been entrusted with the simple but profound good news of Jesus Christ to not just last yourself, but to invite other people to have a faith that lasts as well. And one day, here's what will happen. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be gathered in heaven, surrounding the throne, and we will be praising God. And we will be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? All honor, glory be unto his name. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, that's Jesus. And so we're going to pray out. We get the opportunity then to respond and worship to this good news of the gospel. Pray with me. Father, thank you uh, that you have revealed yourself to us. And what's true, God, as I look at the New Testament frequently, you don't choose to reveal yourself to people who have it all together, but quite the opposite. <laughs> you choose people that are weak and foolish and lowly. You choose the screw-ups You choose the people who have probably deemed themselves too far gone and you have made yourself big and beautiful to them. And so I pray for any person in this room tonight who thinks that they are too far gone. Jesus, remind them that your life was perfect. Your death was sufficient because you did rise from the dead. You rose again victorious and you are offering us new life. And for the Christian in this room, who's heard that before, but has maybe grown cold to it, has lost a sense of amazement and wonder at the mercy of God, I pray that you would capture their heart once again. You would help them confess their sin and just be in awe, God, that you would choose to save people like us. And by the power of your spirit at work within us, give us all that we need to be obedient to you to withstand the trials of life, whether it's when we're 20 or whether it's when we're 60 or whether it's when we're 80, to view trials as a gift, to have our faith tested and proven genuine and to give you the glory. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.